Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I speak to the Right Reverend Rachel Truick, Bishop of Gloucester, the first female diocesan bishop in the Church of England. We talk about her role as Anglican Bishop for Her Majesty's Prison Service and her important work in the House of Lords, raising the need for justice system reform, particularly for women. Rachel, thank you so much for being with me today. And first of all, I want to say congratulations on being the first female diocesan bishop in the country. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> uh, quite a surprise that was. But uh, no, really good to be with you having this conversation. What I'm really keen to find out about is your role as the Bishop of Prisons in England and Wales and where it came from, where did it start and what on earth does it mean you do? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, where did it come from? I suppose running through me, but like a stick of a ro- stick of rock, is a real passion for everyone being equal. Um, as a Christian, I believe everyone's made in the image of God. And I'm absolutely passionate about everyone being seen as equal. I'm passionate about justice, about relationship. And when I was first ordained and was a curate, uh, the church that I served in as a curate was right by Holloway Prison. Interestingly, I didn't actually go into the prison very much. Um, but I think then... Fast track forward and the fact that I I am, I was the first uh, diocesan female bishop, I was the first female Lord spiritual in the House of Lords, that really fanned into flame for me a real passion about women and girls who haven't had the same, been able to make the same choices in life as I have. Um, and therefore, I've been really interested uh, in the female estate. So that's where this all began. Um, Eastwood Park Prison is in the Diocese of Gloucester. And on the day that I was announced as bishop, um, I really wanted to visit the prison. And uh, the BBC were let in. And um, so there was a stuff on the news about me being made bishop. And from there, it's just really grown. And then having worked for a while with the female estate, um, I was then asked whether I would then become Anglican Bishop for Prisons in England and Wales at last year, which obviously is a very, very big task on top of being Bishop of Gloucester. And yeah, so that's really where it's all all sprung from. Okay, so there's around, I forget the exact number these days, but it was around 130 prisons in England and Wales, there or thereabouts. So what service do you provide to the prisons, to the prisoners, to the staff? Primarily... Um, the role began as supporting chaplains 
um, particularly Anglican chaplains in prisons. And then um, looking at what does the church, what do I want to be saying on criminal justice? So how I use my voice in the Lords, in the media. When I visit prisons, uh, the great thing is that I don't go in with any statutory duties. So I hope that what I can do is go in, meet with the men and women, young people in prison. I meet with the governor. I try and meet with the chair of the uh, monitoring board would have some time um, with chaplains, as I say, with people who are in prison, which gives me that sense of being able to know what's going on in prisons, then to be able to use my voice. Where I do want to feed things back to people, I can do so, but I'm not there, if you like, in a scrutiny role. And in many ways, this role continues to evolve. I think whoever does this role um, sort of shapes it around around who they are. So I found myself getting very involved with charities, um, working with those in prison, working across the criminal justice system, with community groups, um, with the probation service now. I've been doing quite a lot with them I've established um, Anglican Bishop for every one of the new probation regions across the oh, country. Nice. And that's new? And that's new. Um, no, with the sense that um, actually then hopefully those those bishops will be able to liaise with leaders of faiths other than Christian um, as we're looking at what does it mean for people coming through the gate. So I'm trying to get that big holistic picture. I guess one of the things I've really discovered in all this is that there is such poor join-up. I mean, you know that, you've been involved in this for years. But so much goes on in silos, um, even within government. So I think one of my my big passions is how can I be an agitator, a catalyst, a connector? Mm. It almost feels to me sometimes like when people are coming out of prison, everyone will come back to one county or another. And there needs to be sort of county coordinators. Um, everything's very simplistic in my brain. <laughs> so I think, oh, I've got an easy way to fix this. Of course, it would probably be quite difficult to find someone who could coordinate things at a county level. And then you'd maybe need a coordinator on all these different things. But the county boundary seems like a good one in the sense that it maps onto police, it maps onto probation, it maps onto sort of, you know, religious geography. But I wanted to ask a question. So your seat in the House of Lords... Is that attached to the fact you are bishop to prisons? Does it come with that job? So in the House of Lords, there are 26 bishops, um, the two archbishops, Archbishop of Canterbury and Archbishop of York, Bishop of London, uh, Bishop of Winchester and Bishop of Durham. Those are all for historic reasons. And then the other 21 are those who have been um, bishops for the longest. So when someone retires, someone else, the next bishop, the next longest serving bishop goes in. Just before I was made bishop, uh, Parliament, nothing to do with us, Parliament um, changed the rules because they were aware it was going to take a very, very long time for a woman to get onto the bishop's bench. And so they agreed that from 2015, for the next 10 years, if there was a female Darson bishop, they would, if you like, trump the others when there was a vacancy. And just as I was appointed, just before I'd been appointed, um, the Bishop of Leicester at the time had retired. So I'd only been a bishop for a few weeks and found myself catapulted into the House of Lords, which was, you know, a real historic moment. I don't think I realised at the time was quite how historic it was. So that's why, um, why, that, why that happened. OK. And then going back to the prison, so I suppose when you're there... 
you are gathering information even though you're not a sort of authoritarian figure there it's sort of more sort of supportive I guess um but then brilliance that you can take that knowledge back to the House of Lords in order to be able to feed into policy and legislation and challenge and and you do that for the men's prisons as well as the female prisons. Yes. And I would say one of the things about the, the bishops and the lords is we're probably the nearest in the lords to having a constituency, if you like, because we will have a geographical area. So one of the things that I really feel I can I can bring to this is that experience not only within Gloucestershire and South Gloss, we have um, Lay Hill men's prison and Eastwood Park women's prison. And obviously, as you say, as I'm visiting other prisons, I have real data, real stories that I can bring to the House of Lords because so often we are scrutinising bills, uh, talking about things which feel so theoretical. And you talked earlier about seeing things in a very simple way. I think that's really important. And for me, one of my passions is how do we cut through all of that? Because particularly with the female estate, you know, we know what needs to be done. This is not impossible to fix. There's not that many women in prison now, of course, as soon as I talk about women in prison, people say, what about the men? I do really care about the men as well. So to put that on record. Um, and we can really fix this with, with women. And we know from the Corsner report from years ago, you know, the female offender strategy from 2018, which I thought, hurrah, this is going to get us somewhere. And, you know, we're still... Um, just going through treacle. And of course, the prisons ministers seems to change for every five I minutes. Know. <laughs> you know, so all of that is so frustrating. But I think that what I can do is, is jump up and really use my voice and bring data and stories to bear. I'm also the president of the Nelson Trust, which again is a, a great privilege. And you know, the work that they do on the ground, I can really bring that into the Lords. So I stay hopeful. <laughs> uh, I mean, at the moment, we're going through the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. And, you know, it does feel a bit like Groundhog Day at times. Mm. Yeah, have to plug away for years and years and years, don't you? So what does a typical day look like if you were to turn up to a prison, you're there as the Bishop of Prisons, what does a sort of average visit look like and what might you sort of be chatting to the staff and prisoners about? Well, obviously, uh, prison visits have been hugely difficult and keep yeah. being halted because of COVID. Um, but I was in a prison, it's in H&P Bullingdon just before Christmas. Um, and what it would typically look like is I'd be welcomed usually by the managing chaplain, who may or may not be Anglican. Um, H&P Bullingdon, the managing chaplain, is a Muslim. They would greet me usually. I'd go to the chaplaincy, probably meet with that team first. Right, because every prison has a chaplaincy department. Every prison has to have a chaplaincy team, and by law, they have to have an Anglican chaplain, which is um, quite amazing, really, given where we are. But I guess because the Church of England is, is still the established church, every prison has to have an Anglican chaplain. Um what that turns out to be in reality is perhaps another story, depending on funding. Um, so, yes, I'd be greeted by the chaplaincy team. I'd meet with them. And then uh, before I visited, I have a little pro forma of what I what I want to see. So the governor would, would have set aside some time in the day um, for me to meet with them, depending on their timetable, when that would be. Um, they would have set up a couple of focus groups for me with some prisoners um, on that day, um, hopefully have the opportunity to meet prison staff. That would usually be as I'm wandering around. If it's possible to meet someone from the IMB board, uh, that's great. The independent monitoring, independent monitoring board. board. Sorry, yes, acronyms are dreadful, aren't they? <laughs> um, and 
if the local bishop, the Darson bishop, is around, they might uh, be present and accompany me, but I probably would have spoken to them beforehand just to say you know, they've got things that, that they want to say. Yeah. Um, and then really anything else the prison might want to show me, you know, if there are particular projects or initiatives going on. And, yeah, so it's, you know, each visit's slightly different. And what type of things do people raise? You know, I guess the prisoners have one set of things they probably want to talk to you about and the staff are different and then again probably a different perspective from the governor so so are they keen to talk to you about religion or do they sort of talk to you about anything they talk to me about anything I mean interestingly uh, quite often the prisoners want to talk to you about food actually <laughs> very important <laughs> um, yes what very important and some of it shocking um I think what surprises me is people think you have a lot more power and authority than you do. So often when you're meeting with prisoners, you know, they think you're going to go out and be able to do all sorts of things, particularly, you know, they do know that I'm in the House of Lords. Two things I always try and say very early on um, is one, I want to thank people, and that can sound a bit trite, but I do feel very often people working in prisons, um, education, prison officers, uh, chaplains, governors can feel very hidden and very run down. They get a lot of criticism and uh, often don't get thanked. And it's amazing how just going in and thanking them and listening to them, how much people seem to appreciate that. Because often there isn't someone just to listen to what they want to say. I always try and ask them what they want to celebrate, what's going well. Because I think too often when people visit prisons, they're always looking for the problems. Um, so that's really good. The other thing I always say to the prisoners, and again, try and make it not sound trite, is because um, they often want to know why I'm there. And I always say, I am no more important than you are. I'm no more significant than you are. We are equal human beings. I've had some opportunities in life that you haven't had. I've also been able to make some choices in life that you haven't had. They're quite taken aback by that. Yes, really. I find particularly the women. Um, sometimes I get some quite um, heart-wrenching notes afterwards. Mm. Um and sometimes very moving, you know, cards and things from people. Because I really do mean that. And I think one thing I want to always get across is that however long someone's got in prison, as you know, for women, often they're in that revolving door of endless short sentences, is that there are new choices that can be made with the right support around. There is a new chapter. And so I always say... Um, you can't undo the chapters that have been written, but there are new chapters to be written. So those are the messages I really try and get across and really listen to people and their stories. Yeah. And then the staff, because I think the prisoners are one thing, aren't they? And, and the staff often, I feel, um, need to be listened to as well and often are run off their feet. And they, they often talk about how they'd like more time with the men and the women, but they simply don't have it. And especially since COVID and there's many more staff off sick and there's many more staff having left the service. So... So do you sort of perform the same role for them? I try to. When I'm out and about on the wings, um, I will, um, you know, often just chat to the staff, ask them how it is, make it very clear I'm not going to be reporting back to anyone. <laughs> yeah. I think staff retention is quite telling in prisons. Um, so that's often a question I'll just ask, how long have you worked here? You know, how, how uh, much staff turnover is there? Um, and again, often people do want, want to check. Again, I do tend to say thank you. And I also tend to acknowledge with them that I really recognise, I mean, I was quite shocked by this when I took on this role, probably very naive, but recognising that there's not a sort of a professional development programme for staff from prison. And yet they're dealing 
with really difficult things. Yeah, well, not only no staff development, very little training. Exactly. I think the training's been increased a little bit in the last few years, but from not very much to still not very much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And a lot um, of what is offered, they have to do in their own time. And so that's, again, something I really want to speak out on. I was meeting with some people from um, the unions earlier in this week just to hear, again, you know, what again, not to be political in that way, but just to hear what they're saying and as they talk about staff retention and I raised with them the issue about professional development. And there's a real desire again to be recognised because you're very hidden away in that role. And you know, at the moment there's a lot of focus rightly on NHS workers. And you know, I said to them, said to the um prison workers that when I was out on a Thursday evening clapping NHS workers, I was always saying, and I'm clapping for all those working in prisons as well. Because they are so hidden and often they can't talk about their work no. either. They're going home often to family situations, carrying loads of trauma for their day, particularly, you know, those who are perhaps watching suicide on suicide watch, dealing with really complex mental health issues, listening to people's stories. And then you carry all of that home. Um, yeah, that does concern me. And so I think professional development as well is about valuing people. Absolutely. And on the sort of death side of things, um, sorry to be grim and depressing, but my podcasts do tend to be quite depressing. That's just a thing. Um, you know, we've had almost two years of COVID now, haven't we? And of course, there's been significant deaths um, in the prisons, both staff and, and prisoners. On the whole, I think it was managed well. And I think people are expecting it to be much, much worse, but still many people have died. So does that come up in your visits? Do people want to talk about grief and having not been able to maybe leave for funerals? Yes. And actually, one thing um that I've been really pleased about is that there's been a real recognition of the work that chaplains do. It's been good in the House of Lords to hear ministers acknowledge the work of chaplains because when there has been um, so few services been allowed to go into prison, things like education, projects, all the volunteers have been stopped, chaplains have continued to go in and have been trying to do everything from giving people crosswords through to taking people to the chapel to light candles for people um, when they perhaps on the day of funerals. One thing that um, has been a positive, if that's the right word, amidst all the awfulness, is that funerals during this time have gone online in most crematorium and, and in lots of churches, which has enabled people in prisons to be able to watch funerals not the same but um and actually in many ways what's been very strange is that people in prison have at times during covid been on a par or a nearer par with what people outside prison have experienced so when people haven't been able to go to family funerals or friends funerals and have had to watch themselves at home being able to say to prisoners actually this is what other people are doing and i noticed um but some of the feedback I had was when lockdown was lifted, one governor said to me that during lockdown, she was saying to the women in prison, you know, when I go home, I want you to know that I'm not able to go out socialising or do things. But then when lockdown was lifted, how that time of was quite turbulent and caused a lot of agitation because suddenly the people in prison were no longer, not, not that you know, we should equate lockdown we've had at home with lockdown in prison, but there were some things, Absolutely. some of the restrictions that were similar. I've heard, I've and heard I, the same thing. You know, I think the other thing is that it's been, you know, we live in such a binary society, don't we, where it's so sort of black and white. Um, but actually there's been, I've been interested in quite a lot of the nuance during COVID, again, particularly with some of the women, some who've said, 
they felt safer because obviously people have been locked up for sometimes 23 hours a day, which I think is dreadful. Some women have said they felt safer because they haven't had all that challenge of um, the sort of bribery that goes on, the bullying. And yet it's really affected mental health. Um, they haven't been able to be the exercise, but people have felt they've been able to do their own thing in their cells. So for me, I've again said in the Lords uh, before Christmas, you know, don't try and just say, well, clearly it's been good that people have felt safer. Ask why they felt safer. And then, then we need to then be addressing those root causes. So if people have been found it safer being in smaller groups doing exercise then that's what we need to be looking at, not say oh, it's better to lock people up for 23 Exactly. Hours it's sort of less chaotic, isn't it, it's for, for both the men and the women, um, sort of smaller yeah. groups and sort of more manageable maybe. But as you say, the sort of 23-hour lockdowns aren't good for anybody. And of course, you know, there's many staff who've joined the service in the last two years who only know men and women behind their doors. And what I've heard is they're terrified when everyone's unlocked because suddenly you're on a wing with 100 men and you sort of think, my God, yeah. I've never known this. No, no, I think that's a really, really good point. And, and then people have gone into prison who've never known anything else either. Um, and I do think, as in wider society, that that trauma and what people have experienced is going to come out later. Um, I think the other thing that's really concerned me is men and women not being able to have access to visits with children. So again, whereas there's been some positives with people being able to have what they've called purple visits, so being able to um, link up with children and family and friends over iPads, which I think we should be able to be doing all the time. It should be something just the norm. But actually not being able to have that physical contact. And, you know, and if your child's a toddler or is not able to converse with you, um, and some people have said that's been they haven't wanted it because so it's been too painful, you know, they don't want to see people on a screen. But I do think we have to look at what have we learned during COVID? What's been utterly horrific? What has actually brought some, if you like, some silver linings to the cloud? And therefore, how do we build those things into things going forward? Because it has got to be nuanced. Absolutely. And what do you think the sort of role of religion plays as a sort of thread running through all the the prisons themselves. And I presume we're talking about the youth estate as well, are we yes, here? Yes. Yeah, so it's the men, the women and the children. And so, yeah, how important is it and why is it important? I think it's really important. Of course, I'm going to say that, aren't I? <laughs> be a bit worrying if I didn't. Um, you know, I would say we are all spiritual beings and I would say a lot of people are aware of that spirituality within them, even if they don't want to name particularly a follower of a particular religion. And when you're in prison, perhaps more so than other times or space in life, you're often really reflecting on life and what, what's led you to be there. And actually having those people who are not going to force anything on you, that's really important. The role of chaplains is to have that time to listen to people's stories, to... Um, be there, I hope, as people of hope. So for me, I would always talk about hope. Um, to just be able to, in a non-judgmental way, explore things. A lot of people, you know, look at the stats. It's really interesting, just across wider society, the number of people who say they pray without even knowing, you know, what that means. A number of people who say, actually, it was when I was in prison, rock bottom, I just thought I'd pray, you know, I'm not going to lose anything. And being able to have those conversations. And actually, interesting, in prison, 
it is a time when a number of people do make a profession of faith as Christians. I was talking about this with someone earlier this week. Um, And then for me, one of my concerns is that people come out of prison often don't have that same support. You know, you've had that support wrapped around you, you've had access to people, and perhaps you come out of prison and you go to your local church and it's not quite how you experienced, you know, what you had in prison. It might be, but it might not be. So again, part of my role um, is to say, how can we ensure that when people come out of prison, there are places where they can be, people they can talk to again in a non-judgmental way. Um, how do we put um, confidential agreements in place so people can attend church, particularly if there are uh, safeguarding issues around them? But I think it's really important in prison that there are people who are there to listen, to share stories, to allow people to explore that spiritual side. You know, a lot of questions people have, those big why questions. Mm. Why has this happened to me? Why has my life been as it has? Is there hope? Can I be forgiven? Can I change my life? And for me, my answer will always be yes. I wouldn't have a piece of white plastic around my neck if I didn't believe (laughs) that there's always a fresh start. I was talking to um, a friend of mine who's a non-believer about the role of the bishop to prisons. This was a few years back. and, and, And I said, as someone who is sort of I describe myself as being quite relaxed about religion. I love all sorts of different types of religion and am drawn to different ones for very different reasons, like the sort of Hindu gods I'm obsessed with, but actually Buddhism is really fascinating. And, you know, so I sort of like a lot of all of them, actually. And I said, you know, from my perspective, from working in prisons as well, it's that when people have no one to turn to at all, they have someone. And whether that's God in the way that you wish God to be, or if that is Buddha or Allah or whoever, um, quite frankly, the sort of I met a man who's the bug in his cell. He thought was actually his dead brother, and there was an amazing sort of story of how um, he sort of you know found this little bug as a sort of companion. And anyway, sadly, the bug didn't survive. But my point being, when you have nobody, it's really important to find solace and comfort in something that's not necessarily there does that make sense yes I I think it does and I think for me again it comes back to that non-judgmental space where someone can be with you um, allow you to ask all those questions Um, and as as a Christian I'd always want to say to people you know there is hope and there is love and those things are really important for me. And I hope that in prison, one of the things that the chaplains are doing is really bearing witness to to, to love and hope. Um, one of the images I, I like using with people, and particularly in prisons, is the image of a tiny candle flame. You know, people will often go to the chaplain and light a candle. And again, as a Christian, I say that one of the the things that we will say about the light of Christ is however dark the world is, if you know this room was full of darkness, that tiny candle flame would still be seen, that the darkness will never have the final word. And even if people don't share my Christian faith, I think that resonates with people that we're saying the light will always be stronger than the darkness. And that's something that chaplains are bearing witness to. Um, in prisons and so I'll often use that image and often use a you know that candle flame to to talk about hope and love and light 
and to say that all of us have have a spark within us um and actually what is it that we can fan into flame in ourselves that that allows us can I'll use the language of becoming the person we've been created to be that that's what I believe we are all unique individuals no two people in the world are the same and again you know I'll say that to people in prison I'm um, just when I was in HMP Bullington the first person I met on a wing um let's call him Tom that wasn't his name and um you know said hello and the chaplain said to me how are you today Tom and he said well I'm still alive unfortunately and you know, just being able to talk to him and say, well, I'm really glad you are still alive because there's no one else in the world the same as you. And he said, well, that's a really good thing. I said, well, I don't think it is. Um, actually, you are you are unique. You are precious. Whatever's gone on in your life, there's still another chapter. Even if that's going to be in prison, there's still another chapter we can all add to the hope and love of the world in who we are and so often people at such rock bottom they don't have any value they don't value themselves and if actually chaplains and if I when I visit can say I genuinely I'm not just saying it I genuinely believe that you are valuable and that you have a unique place in this world that for me is the starting place. It's amazing really isn't it because yeah you're taking me back to so many moments on the on the wings and sort of in the prisons and and just that sort of, you know, listening to you talking about the sort of light in the darkness um, reminded me of uh, a prison officer in, I can't remember which prison saying, you know, it's the light that gets shone in the darkest of places. And it's, it just seems to be quite a theme um, yeah. and one that we can all sort of understand no matter what sort of religion we're from. How often can prisoners use the chapels? That's a really good question. Um, I don't have a straightforward answer to that because every prison is slightly different and obviously under COVID, um, that's been a bit different. Um, so all chaplaincy teams would have a pattern of services, again, covering the different faiths. Um, there would be, you know, at least for the Anglicans, at least one service a week and people can go to those services. Again, prisons have different you know, signing mechanisms, whether it's an open prison or, you know, whatever it, um, the situation. Um, and then usually people can arrange to go to the chapel if they, um, you know, want to go, as we said earlier, for a particular reason. The other thing is, which might not be known, is that um, the Anglican chaplains have to visit every person who comes in new, so all the new, all those who are admitted. So every day... The chaplains will be going round uh, to ensure that they have seen all those who've been admitted. No matter what religion. Yep, they'll go and see them all and they'll talk to them about the chaplaincy team. Um, if they want to uh, be put in touch with the imam or, you know, a rabbi, someone from their own faith, then that can be arranged. But okay. they're visited with sort of standard, that you should have a standard set of questions they'd ask on that visit. Um, they would also be part of... Uh, the gathering where people who are at harm, being seen to be um, potentially harming themselves, they um, have little meetings each day in the prison, multidisciplinary meetings. The chaplains would be part of that. And usually um, the management chaplain would be on the um, management team of the, of the prison staff. So within all of that, every prisoner would get seen um, and then 
you know, if someone said, well, I'd really like to go to the chapel or, uh, you know, this particular anniversary or it's a funeral or whatever it might be, Muslim chaplain would look at what's available for Friday prayers. Um, some of it does depend on capacity um, in each prison. So we have a team of volunteers. Um, and again, there'll be different numbers of chaplain volunteers in each prison, but volunteers haven't been going in during COVID. So a lot is the art of the possible. Yeah. So there's a chapel. And then how does it work to accommodate other faiths? And is that ever a bone of contention amongst other religious groups that they have to sort of maybe be shoehorned into a, you know, an Anglican-looking place. Again, it's different, as it is in um, other places like hospitals as well, it's different from prison to prison, partly often depending on when they were built. So sometimes there'll be um, a chapel and a multi-faith prayer room. Sometimes there will just be a large multi-faith prayer room that is used at different times by different faiths. Um, so a lot will just depend on on what's but there will always be provision of some sort. Yeah, I remember going to I think it was Halden Prison in Norway, and I was quite struck when we went into what they called the religious room. And I said, "Oh, how does it work here with sort of pews or the different religions and accommodating them?" And they said, "Well." you know, so as not to sort of cause any trouble with anyone, we have a room, whoever's coming in, we can project the sign of their religion onto the wall. But we don't believe that if Muslim people are coming in, they shouldn't have to move benches and pews in order to be able to get on with what they want to do and vice versa for everybody. And, um, and I thought that was an incredibly sensible approach. But as you say, some of our prisons have been built in the 1700s, 1800s. Yeah, I've um, never seen a prison with pews in yet. I'm sure I will. Usually they're spaces where they have chairs right. because they might well be used for... Um, I mean, I don't actually really like them. Yeah, I don't. I don't really. I have to say, I like to keep a press space as a press space, but um, they will often be places where there might be other programs that go on, restorative justice programs, yeah. um, Bible studies, discussion groups. So they're usually fairly flexible spaces. And as I say, in some prisons, they'll have a. It will be, as you said, multi faith space where different symbols and different things can be brought in. The other thing that sort of has struck me over the years is that prisons with a really good chaplaincy department seem to make an incredible impact on the prison. And then I have also been to prisons where they were quite happy to read their Bibles, not leave their chaplaincy department. This was years ago now. But how does one and who should be sort of overseeing the effectiveness of what is, in my view, such a crucial, crucial part of the prison, if not even the sort of heartbeat. And regardless of whether you're religious or not, or what religion you are from, I was always struck by the good chaplaincy departments and how they reached into every cell, they reached into every corner of every wing. And then to see a bad one really sort of upset me because I could see how the prison was lacking because of that. Yeah, no, I really agree. I think where a chaplaincy team is working well and where they are um, valued within the prison, they are actually can build that real sort of oil, you know, running between every, everything. Yeah. And I think a real um, a real marker of well-being within, within prisons. Um, so we do have what's called a, a chaplain general um, okay. based at, uh, well, for... You know, HMPPS headquarters um, in in London. Um, at the moment, that's the Venerable James Ridge, who is Anglican, 
Um, and again, that post is, is held by an Anglican and oversees um, the, the leads for the chaplains of all faiths. So there will be a lead for all the different, different faiths. And then I work very closely with the Reverend Helen Durnley, who's the Anglican advisor, who works closely with James. Um, and I have to say just over the last couple of years, they have done the most, are doing good work before that, but they've done the most amazing work at really pulling together policies, procedures, protocols, which is, that could again sound very management speak, but I think if you have good processes and good structures in place, that then allows for them to be lived well. So um, they would always be involved now in appointments of chaplains, um, would do, I mean, they're always, Helen is always on the road visiting chaplains, and although she's there as the Anglican advisor, she would visit the whole of the, the chaplain teams, and, um, and I work very closely with her, and you know, we're, hopefully we're moving in the right direction about ensuring that in all our prisons we have good chaplains. And one of the issues um, you won't be surprised to hear is financial, um, because there's got to there's got to be the money mm. um, to actually appoint people, and then we've got to actually um, have people who will will apply for those posts, and that's not always straightforward either. So we do have a few prisons who've been really very low on their chaplain provision for a while and who haven't yet or haven't had replacement Anglican chaplains and that's something that we will keep um, pushing on. Uh, you know, I want to say um, in clergy terms and to fellow bishops, do you know what? This is really important ministry. This is um, as important as people who are in parishes, as important as people who are doing other different sorts of ministry we have to um, we have to bring it into the light and uh, make it be visible and how would you sort of go about practically trying to sort of fix that so you've got this sort of people wanting to do it is one thing and then the money is the other thing and would the money come from the ministry of justice budget or is it the church of england budget yeah it's the ministry of justice budget and one of the things is getting some quite technicality but one of the things is that when people are first ordained they serve a curacy like an apprenticeship for three or four years. Um, and those posts are paid for out of diocesan budgets. Um, now, I would love to have curates in prison. So people from the very beginning, there are some people who say, do you know what, my calling to be ordained, it is a calling to be a prison chaplain or a hospital chaplain. And, and that's where I really think, you know, my, my long-term vocation is going to be. Now, obviously, the, the justice budget isn't going to have money in it to pay not only for the Anglican chaplain, but also for someone to work alongside them as an apprentice. And actually for a diocese to say, OK, we'll give you one of our precious curacy posts, which might only be a few, a handful each year, is quite a big thing. So part of it, I think, is how we say, can we be more creative in how we might do part-time posts? So someone might serve part of their curacy in a prison, connected to a parish. Those are all things that actually are being looked at at the moment. Because if you haven't ever been exposed to prison chaplaincy, you might not actually recognise you want to do it. So quite often yeah, I'll cure... might not even cross no, your mind. No, but across your mind. And actually, um, one of the things we try and do with quite a lot of um, our curates is to give them a placement, you know, in a, in a prison or a hospital or a school to get a taster um, and see. That can be quite hard because getting clearance to go into a placement is hard. But I think all the time it's talking about it and part of my role with my fellow bishops is to be saying, you know, this is really important. And so often as the church, we talk about um, how do we reach people 
who won't walk through the doors of a church building um, because, you know, gone are the days where everyone walks through the doors of a church building. Um, Actually, one of the ways that we will reach people and be able to listen to people's stories and share is going to them. And, you know, prisons is a great is a great place for doing that. Again, not to proselytise, but to be there and to be able to say, you know, this is who we are. Yeah, it's like when people talk about hard-to-reach groups. I sort of always think, well, you need to try harder to reach them because yes. <laughs> you're obviously not trying hard enough. You know, you just go to them. Yes, exactly, go out to them. And, you know, and again, you know, prisons... People have a stereotypical view as well, don't they, of, of who they think uh, people are in prison. Actually, as people from all walks of life, carrying all different stories, people of all ages... Um, Actually, there's much we can learn and much we can share. So I think prison, yeah, prison chaplains are really important and very high up on, on my agenda. If I went back now to um, going back to my early days as um, when I was first ordained, um, I would seriously be wanting to be a prison chaplain, I think. Yeah, I agree. So you've been in the post for how long as bishop to prisons? The bishop to prisons, um, only for about 18 months. But 18 before months. that, I was a uh, Bishop James Langstaff who was holding the post before the Bishop of Rochester. Um, he had given me the female estate to uh, to be overseeing, really. So I was doing that for probably about the last um, four four years or so. Right. So what are your hopes you know the job won't last forever as bishop to prisons so what are your hopes for your for your term so i think going back to something i said earlier one of my real hopes is that i might be able to do some of the weaving together and the connecting of people so i find i spend a lot of time saying oh have you spoken to so and so and that charity there do you know this person's doing this piece of research or you know whatever though those things might be um within government I hope that I can really use my voice um, well, not least on bills that come up and the questions I ask. I want to be quite provocative. Um, What I would love to see over the next few years is some sort of commission on prisons where we look at the whole... Well, actually, I'd like to do it on the criminal justice system. We were discussing this in the House of Lords yesterday under the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill where there was an amendment about um, a royal commission for sentencing. And a number of us saying, you know, what we'd really like is some sort of royal commission on the criminal justice system because I do think it's broken and I do think it's, it's grown like topsy. I'm really worried about the direction of travel at the moment um, that... That all the a lot of the things in the in this latest bill seem to be about how do we increase sentences, um, how do we make people feel safer, and you know the answer to that is if we lock people up for longer, we'll all feel safer, um, which of course is ludicrous. And so often, if I can be really honest, it's I think a knee jerk reaction often to the red top papers. Yeah, um, you know, yeah, but you know, um, and and. Um, And actually, that's not the evidence. So I think the other thing I want to be able to keep saying is we've had evidence for years and years and years. We don't need more evidence. We need to act on the evidence. So again, yesterday I jumped up in the House of Lords and, uh, you know, and and said I did feel a bit like it was Groundhog Day. And actually, we need to check that everything's based on evidence. Um, So I think that's something I can keep talking about and keep on with. Um, In the female estate... I do believe there are deliverables. There have been for years, and I'm not going to give up hope on that. Um, 
you know, the idea that because we're going to have more police officers, we're going to have more people in prison, men and women, what is all that about? Um, <laughs> well, yes, you good know, question. And, and, and the, you know, the whole female offender strategy was actually how we reduce the number of women. So I will keep on being passionate about women's centres. I will go on saying this is the answer, this is the way forward. Um, and if we can try and get some of those. There's little steps for making the female offender strategy. If I can add my voice and do anything to take us on to the next step, I will feel I've done I've done something. Um, and I think it's about what we do in prisons. So even if you say, well, let's lock someone for eight years, more than four years, I don't believe that will make any difference. It said it will make no difference if what goes on when they're in prison, if there's no rehabilitation and there aren't the resources that's not going to make any difference whatsoever. So I think it's some of those things, some of those really human relation things that I will go on talking about and we'll keep on pushing for um, meetings with ministers. The other thing I'd like to do is uh, make some small steps forward. With, I'd like to make some big steps forward, but being realistic, some small steps forward with housing um, for men and women when they come out of prison. We know that that's one of the real drivers that sends people back to prison because there's nowhere to live. So I'm very involved with um, um, some work at the moment with women coming out of prison and also looking at men coming out of prison. What can we do practically? Um, there's some very exciting work going on with uh, how we might build, particularly using some church land, um, build not only social housing, but um, sort of temporary housing using really good pods. Um, there's been some exciting work going on on that. So I think the danger for me is there's so many places I've got my put my fingers into pies. Um, I've got to work out what I can do, where I might make a connection, then say, OK, I have to put that down because I'm very aware that I'm passion rich and time poor. Um, but I hope that I can keep my eyes and ears open on the big picture. Yeah, certainly heartwarming to hear that, you know, you say the role doesn't come with sort of power and authority and I know what you mean in that sense but actually how lucky the prison service is to have your voice represented in the House of Lords because at the end of the day we can all do bits and bobs on the outside in the community but if it's not reflected in policy and legislation then it, it won't be sort of lasting change really will it so um, I think the prison service is very lucky to have you and all power to your elbow for the for the rest of your time in post and thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. And thank you for all you do as well. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.